Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Emily Robertson. Emily is an author. Her YA debut, Lifestyles of Gods and Monsters, a retelling of the Greek myth of Theseus and the Minotaur with a reality TV show twist, launches this Tuesday, October 22nd. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you. We know that the book is coming out. That must be very exciting for you. Incredibly exciting. How long have you been working on the book? Obviously, we'll get into the details and everything, but just high level, when did you start it and how does it feel right now with going into Tuesday? So it sold two years ago and I was writing it for about a year before that. And then the original idea, which is the first chapter, I wrote as a piece of flash, probably even a year before that. So it's been kind of a short time for me between the sitting down to write the novel and having it done, but kind of a long time in the scheme of the universe. Besides going on podcasts like this, what else is running through your mind with two days ahead? Are you thinking about how's the book going to perform? Are there tasks that you still need to do You know, for a publisher? From an author's perspective, what do you do that week before a release? There's a fair amount of social media that I have been doing and have been scheduling and planning in the lead up. So I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to have a blog tour. So promoting that. And then also, we're having a launch party here. And I'm actually traveling to Memphis, and then to New York all next week. I mean, this week, I guess it's this week. So there's even just thinking about what to pack. So <laughs> there's a bunch of different things. And you're based out of Little Rock, Arkansas, correct? That's right, yeah. How does that affect you as an author in 2019? Obviously, New York is the hub of you know editors and literary agents. Does it affect you at all, or is it totally normal, the same as if you lived in New York City? It is not the same as if I lived in New York City. I've been at the process of trying to get published for a long time, and there were definitely times where I thought, oh, if we lived in Brooklyn, this would be faster. And I do think that that would probably be true is I would have had more of a community sooner. But the other side of it is, if we lived in Brooklyn, we'd be in a little tiny apartment. So those are the sort of the trade offs. I have also met authors through the internet, which has been great. I think 2019 makes this way easier than even 2008 would have been. And before we get into lifestyles of gods and monsters, Walk us through briefly leading up before even the book. At what point did you want to become an author? What was that kind of inception story about how you got to this point, ready to release your debut novel? So I'm one of those people that can remember being in the first grade and reading Little Women and knowing that Joe was an author and deciding that that was what I wanted to do. So it's been a, it's been a long time. But I'm from Arkansas and really, I mean, there are people like Charles Portis was from Arkansas. I mean, there definitely are Arkansans who have been authors, but at the same time, 
it didn't feel like a thing that I could do. I couldn't figure out how I could do it. So I sort of did that thing where you write in high school. And then I went to Brown, which uh, for many people is a stepping stone to a lot of great stuff. For me, I found it terrifying. And so I didn't really show anyone my work and my creative work for years. I went to graduate school in English, but studying literature. And then I was a journalist and I didn't start writing fiction again, seriously, until we were living in Boston and I had a job working as a marketing person that was just boring enough to have a lot of energy to write at night. And so that was, I would say that was around 2003, 2004. And so I started writing novels then. I had a Southern thriller that didn't sell and then a chiclet novel that I self-published in 2011. And then another novel that didn't sell. So this is my fourth completed manuscript. But I just love doing it. So it felt okay to sort of keep at it, even though people look at you like you're kind of crazy. For those other manuscripts that you completed, was there a reason why this one is kind of the debut? Did you try to get those other manuscripts out and go through the query process? Or did you kind of decide to hold off on that for those? And then I know you mentioned you self-published one of them. But did you ever try to query and go through that process for those in the same way that you're now releasing this? No, I queried all four. Okay. I kind of have a rule that once you get to about, I have consistently gotten the thing that I know many authors have where you get requests for fulls and you send the full and you hear back some version of didn't connect with this, not the right time for this, you know, those kinds of things. And I think a lot of times those things are market. The chiclet novel I published, I finished right after the financial crisis, they weren't wrong. There really was not. A, there was market for those when I was writing it. And then when I, by the time I finished it, there no books like that were selling. So I just sort of looked at it as being like, well, okay. Um, once I had gathered, I would say between 50 and 100 really solid queries that were rejected, I just put the books away and went to the next thing. Are you prepared to hear me briefly read a description of your book? Sure. Okay, I'm warning you ahead of time. All right, so here we go. <laughs> Greek mythology meets the Kardashians in Emily Robertson's Lifestyles of Gods and Monsters, a fresh, fast-paced debut, a young adult novel about celebrity culture, family dynamics, and finding love amidst it all. Then I have a quote here from School Library Journal, a creative and fast-paced retelling of the Minotaur myth that is both loyal to the original story and rife with thoughtful commentary on the modern phenomena of social media, celebrity culture, and surveillance. The concept is endlessly intriguing, and its execution is dark, salacious fun, a novel mix of the Hunger Games, keeping up with the Kardashians, and Greek mythology that will draw in former Percy Jackson fans looking for a more grown-up read. That's really exciting stuff. Tell us about this book. Tell us about why it's special to you and why people should buy it this week. This book was so much fun to write. I think that's the biggest thing I would say. I know there's a lot of writers that listen to the podcast, and I listen to the podcast, but is that if you are having a ball writing something, it is strongly possible that other people will also enjoy it. I came into this as a person who loves Greek mythology, always has, and also is, I wouldn't say I love everything about social media or reality TV, but I am fascinated by it. And I think that many of the ways that people are judgmental about it feel, they feel sort of easy to me. They're sort of like, oh, dismissing it out of hand 
with really very little knowledge of what it is and what it's like. And so for me, I started thinking about what analogs are there for Kim Kardashian, someone who essentially got famous to start with by making a sex tape. Like what in the, you know, (laughs) 20 years ago, if you made, well, she is 20 years, but 30 years ago, if you had made a sex tape, it would have ruined your career, not send it into the stratosphere. And so I just kept thinking, what are the analogs to that? And actually, I started thinking about not so much the Greek gods and really not the heroes like Heracles or someone like that who's famous for, you know, killing monsters or even Theseus, but more of the people like like the mother of the Minotaur and other characters from mythology who are really famous for who they slept with or things like that. And so that was. And then I just had this mental image of the paparazzi in the trees taking pictures of the people in the time of the Greek myth. And that was really the genesis. I wrote the first chapter as in pure inspiration, just like pure writer mode. You know, you just are like, hey, what's this? I'm going to check this out. And then I thought, what in the world do I do with this? This is really weird. And put it to the side. And I'm super lucky. I have a great critique group of ladies, they meet in Dallas, they call in to me because we lived in Dallas briefly. And I showed it to them after I had written a middle grade novel that I went through the query process and it didn't get picked up and was feeling really blue. And so I showed that chapter to my ladies being like, I don't know what to do with this. And they were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You have to write this. And so the next process was figuring out who was telling the story. And then that became very obvious that it was Ariadne who is the main female character in this myth. And then it was just a matter of writing the story. I had the the outline was there in the myth itself. And so it was more a way of figuring out how to make the story fully hers, not Theseus's story. And then to tell it in a way that felt true to her character. And I just had a ball writing it. So we love to dive into process. You already kind of briefly went into the inception Are you cool with kind of walking through your process on working on this book? We can kind of dive through each step. Awesome. The first step, like I said, you mentioned the inception, kind of how you came up with the book. Tell us about the research process. You're adapting an ancient Greek myth into a retelling of it. What does that look like? Where did you start? Did you hit Wikipedia? So I made an executive decision from the very beginning that I wasn't going to be wedded to the myth, that I didn't want this to feel dusty or correct. I put quotes on that. Like I didn't want it to feel like pedantic. I didn't want it to feel pedantic. So I did the tiniest amount of internet research. Like I, I mean, I was familiar with the myth just from growing up as a kid who liked myths. I think we had a, you know, a kids like a Joe Dallaire's, you know, book of myths or something. And so I looked at that. I looked at the Wikipedia entry, I looked a little bit at, you know, when you go on the internet, the sort of like feminist dark history of the myths or whatever, you know, those people that are on the internet that post that kind of thing, just to see like, what are the other points of view? Also, I had visited, I went on one of those school trip cruises to Europe when you're like right after I graduated high school, I went to Italy and Greece. And while we were there, we spent a day at Knossos on Crete, which is a reconstruction of the ancient palace there at Crete, which is where this myth takes place. And so I had 
the pictures I'd taken, you know, after I graduated from high school, sort of there to look at just to have a sense of the place. Cause I left the idea that this was a real place. And I sort of, Oh, I forgot about this. I did a bunch of research where I went in Google maps and I drew, I overlaid the sort of model of the, what they think the distances were for the original palace on top of the Google Earth pictures of Crete. And then I went and got pictures of like skyscrapers in Dubai and things like that and sort of built this whole imaginary architecture. So I do know like in the story where the palace is and where the pier is and that kind of thing. So that was more the grounding. It's like, what would this be like as a real place? So that was, but then when it came to how the characters have been presented historically, especially Ariadne, my main character, I didn't pay any attention to past stuff because I feel like she really hasn't been given a character through history. And so I really wanted to make her fully herself from my point of view. Do you feel as a writer that you have to live up in a certain way to maybe those history buffs or those people who do expect to read about these Greek myths and expect them to follow a certain path based on history? That was the great thing about the reality TV is because no, because people that feel that strongly about that probably would already have dismissed it because of the reality TV element. So I felt very free to sort of not worry about them at all. Tell us about the outline process. So you have this idea, you do your research, sit down and you're going to start writing this book. What does the outline look like? That's a Word document. How long is it? How many times are you going over that? And at what point are you ready to kind of go from that outline to actually start writing the book? So I actually write in Scrivener, which I love. And what I love about Scrivener is I feel like it gives me more freedom from the outline. So I have, I had an outline at the time I was writing, I was reading Save the Cat, the screenwriting sort of guide. And so I had a basic save the cat beat sheet on paper just sort of next to the computer that I done on graph paper I find for me that the outlining part works much better if I do it by hand with multicolored pens and paper because if I put it into an excel sheet or into a word document it starts to get really rigid and I I lose track of my characters I'm one of those people where I have to keep going back to the what I've actually written and making sure that it's true to the characters because sometimes I can get so stuck on the outline that I lose the character. So I've got a bunch of tricks in my sleeve just to remind me that the outline isn't... I think sometimes for some of us who came up especially through school, like if you were good at school, the outline can be a trap more than a help. Because you start to feel like the outline is something that you're graded on. And so you're sticking to it even when it's not serving you anymore. So, and even with this, the ending, we sold this book with an ending that we knew was not as strong as it needed to be. And so the ending was infinitely improved through the editing process. So I guess that's to say I have the outline, I use the outline, but I'm constantly changing the outline. Tell us about the themes in the book. Did you have a separate list of themes where they worked into the outline? How do you kind of keep track of what you're trying to say with the book? And did you know what you were trying to say from the beginning? 
That's such an interesting question. So for me, the themes were so clear from the beginning. I knew that I was thematically fascinated with the idea of surveillance and what it's like to be watched all the time. And partially, I think, you know, because of the world we live in and partially the ways that we're surveilling ourselves, you know, with social media and stuff. So I was very interested in that and performance, surveillance, performance. And then I was also really interested in the ways that people convince themselves that they're doing the right thing. And so I didn't necessarily have to make notes to myself about those themes because I felt like they were really so built into the world from the very beginning. So it was, if I got away from those, I would start to feel, the book started to feel slack when I got away from those themes. So it was pretty easy to cut. Then you start writing the book. Tell us about that process, what it looks like. Are you going chapter to chapter? Are you going one pass all the way through? So for this, let's see, I had that first chapter. And for people who read the novel, the first chapter is really, it's not a prologue, but it takes place 13 years before the action of the novel. So I really didn't know where to start. And so I really lean in on dialogue of all things. This is kind of an interesting thing. I wrote the dialogue first and I didn't know where I was. I didn't know where she was. I didn't know where I was. Like I said, I'd done all the work to sort of set up the world, but I wasn't sure where in the world they were. And so I wrote that dialogue and just kind of setting up the problems of the book and setting up when Ariadne, the main character, meets Theseus, the hero. Well, I mean, he's, he's not the hero of the story, but he's the hero in the original myth. And then I, it had a funny thing happen, which is that I'd written about 50 pages, and I knew I had something really strong, but I wasn't sure what to do about it. I went to a, so there's this group that's amazing called the Society of Children's Books, Writers, and Illustrators, S-B-B-W-I. And it's a professional organization for people who write and illustrate children's books and young adults, everything from picture books to young adults. And they have really great conferences. So I went to one that was in Dallas. You know, we had, like I said, we had lived in Dallas briefly. And so they have a great chapter of this organization there. So I went, well, I go and I, it's one of those things where you can have an editor read some of your work. So I had a 15 page sample and this was the first 15 pages of lifestyles. And so I go to the thing and I'm thinking, Oh, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'll do this. So I'm there. The editor that's there, who was from Simon and Schuster, basically told me, like, I love this and I want to see the whole thing and I want to see it by December 31st. At this point, it was in September and I had 50 pages and I was like, oh crap. So I'm not totally sure how I wrote the whole thing. I did NaNoWriMo it. I mean, I used the NaNoWriMo sort of the structure that they have of accountability. So I finished it. Well, I sent it to him and he didn't end up being the person that bought it, but I then had a completed manuscript and I queried that. So I queried knowing that the end was a little weak, which was new for me. And if you didn't have that level of accountability through that editor who had asked you to write it, 
how long do you think it would have taken you? And what are, do you have any advice for those people who are writing and trying to stick to a self-imposed deadline? Oh, it would have taken me much longer. <laughs> no, it would have taken me much longer. It would have probably, I would say, been another six months. I feel like that's one thing where actually NaNoWriMo is really helpful. I know it starts any day now, but for people who've been considering whether or not to nano and kind of the habit of sitting in your chair and writing every day, or I never manage every day because of the contingencies of my life, but at least five days a week to write 1,500, 2,000 words that just moves the needle forward. And so the thing for me that was interesting about this book, different from the others, which especially the first book I wrote, The Southern Thriller, which still is currently under the bed, I finished it and realized it didn't have a protagonist, which is a very early writer thing to do. I I thought it had one. And then later on, I was like, no, it doesn't really have a protagonist. That book, I overworked it. You know, I revised it and revised it and revised it. And it was worse you know, three or four revisions in, it was worse than it had been because I didn't know how to make it any better. And so with this, I will say with Lifestyles, by the time I queried it, I knew that I had it as strong as I could get it on my own. So it was ready to query, even though it totally wasn't ready to be a book yet. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. You actually beat me to my next question, which was how do you know when the manuscript is ready to submit? Tell us about getting prepared to write the query letter. You had said that you had queried your previous books. What did the research look like when you were prepping for the agents that you were looking to contact and how to write a query letter? What did that look like? And at what point were you kind of ready to send it along? So I, the part of me that I was saying I have to put away when I'm working from the outline, the part of me that's like loves to check a box and, you know, did well in school, I bring her out in full force for the query process. So I have a very detailed spreadsheet in numbers where I went through and I looked at, okay, so a couple different steps. Step number one is I looked at 
the Writer's Digest Guide to Children's Literature and the Writer's Digest Guide, you know, that big Writer's mm-hmm. Digest book. Looked at both of those because things do change. So I wanted to like check and see what's the most recent, you know, because when I started querying, you sent them a self-addressed stamp envelope and no one took any query. And this was not that long ago. Like I started, I mean, I guess in a way it was a long time ago, but 2004 in other ways, like many people were children, but some people remember that. And it was a completely different process. So I just wanted to make sure, you know, that I had everything. And then on my spreadsheet, I included, I used actually numbers, which is great because it has check boxes. So like, does someone want 15 pages? Do they want five pages? Do they want a synopsis? You know, so each, each individual agent, I had all that information in the spreadsheet so that I didn't have to keep going back to their website. And then wrote a query. I do have a critique group, which I highly recommend. I wrote for many years without a critique group. And I feel like having a critique group has made my writing so much better. So my critique group read the query, gave me their thoughts on it. And then when I start sending queries, I send in batches of five. And so if you get, if you send your first five and you get cricket, then it's probably your query. So go back, reread your query, look at it again, see if maybe you don't have the hook high enough. Maybe you're not clear on what your story problem is. Maybe your comps are bad. Like those are the kinds of things to look at. And then when deciding who to query, this time I really was very careful to try to get people I was the most excited about. So I looked at, I just Googled, I think, like, you know, most successful YA agents. I think it's maybe what I Googled. (laughs) And it ended up with somebody on the internet had done a tally of the agents that had the most sales in whatever the year was I was querying. And so, um, and mine is one of those, I mean, one of those people, one in my book. So, but that was also the matter of, but that thing where I would say that the previous experience querying was so helpful to me because I knew at that point that like the query letter wasn't my problem. My problem was that the, my book wasn't hitting at the right time or whatever. So I felt like really getting in there was the most important thing. So when I queried those top 10 agents, it was with the full knowledge that I had something that I was really excited about sharing and I was very proud of. And so I was ready for them to get back to me and say, yes. And I would say like with my first book, I wouldn't have started at that level. I would have started more like, you know, with someone who was on their way up or, you know, that kind of thing. Cause I wasn't sure about it. And when your current agent got back to you, what do the steps look like getting from the point at which, hey, I'm interested in this to you getting, you know, signed, so to speak? I totally did this wrong. So I will, I mean, it turned out right because I ended up with her. But I was, again, doing a bunch of research on the internet. And people said that the thing to do in that case is to let, because I had other agents who were reading fulls, is to tell them you'll give them a week tell your agent, because she called to offer representation. She called to say, I love your book. I would love to be your agent. That's not always what happens. Sometimes people will call and say, like, love to have you revise and resubmit this. She said, I would love to be your agent. And I loved talking to her. I'd already done my research. I knew she was great. But I had read on the internet 
source of all great information, that you should um, give other people a heads up that you, you know, to give them time to bow out that that was the thing to do. So I told my agent, like, well, give me a week. And so I emailed everybody else. Well, about three days in, I was like, wait, I have an offer from like, basically my dream agent. Why didn't I just say yes? <laughs> I called her back and was like, yes. And she, she said, well, I was wondering because we got along so well. And so I think in that case, like I was being so careful because I didn't want to, I don't know. I don't know what I, I did. I wanted to be correct. You know, I wanted to do it right. And that definitely is the advice that's out there. Like people say, like give other people a week. I think basically if you talk to someone and you love them and they're great, and you're really happy to work with them, and you know they're reputable, I could totally have sent an email to those three other agents and been like, hey, I'm going with this person. You don't have to read my book now. And that wouldn't have been upsetting to anyone because those other agents got back to me and said, oh, no, thanks. Anyway, so. What are those next steps once you get that call from that agent and then you call them back and say, I do want to work with you? I'm assuming you were working together to refine the manuscript and get it to the best point possible so that it's ready to be sent to editors. So what does that process look like? So she sent me back and now we were in a funny position because she offered representation to me in the late spring. And so publishing tends to get very slow in the summer. So we were kind of, and I also, I used to be a journalist early in my career, so I do know how to work fast on a deadline. And I did tell her that. And so she sent back an edit letter almost immediately. So this would be like early May. And then I turned around and made her changes very quickly. So we were sending the book out to editors right around Memorial Day. So it was very fast in that case. And then as far as when the agent sends the pitch to editors, do they loop you in on what that looks like? Or is that a little bit mysterious and how they kind of pitch your book to editors? In my agent's case, she's very transparent. So she told me who we were sending to. She asked if I had any relationships with editors. And really, other than that one that I had met that I told you guys about, I really didn't have. I mean, I'm, I know some people are very connected. I was basically as unconnected as it's possible for a human to be. So I didn't, I was like, sure, whoever you, whoever you think is great. <laughs> and then she sent me her pitch, which so interestingly is basically a version of your query letter. Like it is really true that they take your query letter and spiff it up and then send it. So she told me who she was sending to. She sent it to 30 or so. And she did all at once. Like some people will space them out. She did all 30 at once. And then she asked me if I wanted to be told every rejection. And I did not. Some people want to see them all. I just, I wanted to know uh, if anybody had something really positive to say, or if anybody had something that felt that she felt would be super helpful. But I really didn't want like the, no thanks, not for us. No thanks. Because coming off of querying, I'd heard so much, no thanks, not for us. I really wasn't in a place where I wanted to hear that. So um, so that's how we had it. And she sort of kept me up to date about once a week. 
and we sort of set that also. She sort of said, how about I get in touch with you once a week and see where we stand. And then what does it look like when an editor actually, you know, takes a bite on your book and wants to work with you? What does that look like? I assume the agent and the editor hop on a call with you. What are the next steps from there? That's exactly what happens. Or at least in my case, that's what happened. We got an email from my agent saying, hey, we have someone that's interested. She wants to have a call. In my case, she wanted to have a call first with a couple questions, one of which was, would I be willing to change the title? Because the working title wasn't Lifestyles of Gods and Monsters. I had called it, titles are not my natural gift. <laughs> and so I had been calling it the thread, as in like a ball of thread, for the whole time I was working on it. With sort of knowing that that was a working title, but not wanting to spend a bunch of time picking a title. So the original call with the editor was like, hey, are you willing to change the title? Yes. And hey, so the first chapter was a, it's a shocking chapter now in the original draft. It was even more shocking. So they just wanted to know, like, would it be okay with me if we like smooth the edges on that a little bit? And that was fine also. And then, so I said yes to that. And then I think she must've gone back to everybody at McMillan and then came back and made an offer. And then what's that next phase look like when you start working with that editor? How do you feel when you receive those notes? What does the revision process look like when you're trying to get that book to its final place? So this is really fascinating. I thought that I would be like totally fine with getting the notes. My revision process went through three packages of notes. The first was an email that was basically what you would call a developmental edit, I guess. It was like, it was questions. There were no answers in it. It was like, you know, what about this? What about that? What about this? And they were all things that I had obviously had not been clear on. But there was nothing written in the manuscript, just those questions. And I had only two months, I think. I'm a little hazy on the memory of that, but to sort of address those questions. And then the next edit was actual like markups on the manuscript. I thought I would be like, yes, totally jump right into this. It turns out I could read it and then I had to like put it away and go do other things for a couple of days because feel like you're so close when you go through the process of being edited with your agent and to get the notes basically say, nope, you are not there yet. Um, I felt like, like someone had, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's somebody critiqued something I spent a year on. So it was, it was rough. But not horrible. And I came back after two days and could be like, yes, I, I didn't read it again. I like read it. And then like, it was like, it was a tea bag steeping, you know? And then I came back and I was like, okay, yes, she's absolutely right about these things. I mean, we cut a major character. It, it was a lot. And then, and then we went through line edits and then copy edits. So at what point do you know when the book is completed? Obviously that process. I imagine takes a little time, a few months at least, right? Well, when they send it to copy editing is when you know it's complete. That's that's really, I mean, copy editing, you do have to do some work. But like, that was my, I mean, even from a monetary perspective, like my contract was set up that I got half on signing and half when it was like final completion. And that's when it got went to copy edits. So I cashed my check. I was like, okay. So 
there is more to do with copy edits, but copy edits is really just like, you know, you put that here instead of which, those kinds of things. Regarding the caching of checks you just mentioned, a lot of writers are really excited about that part of it. What would you say to those who are someday, you know, hoping to get to that point where they can be self-sufficient of writing? I would say it's a long road to get to there. I feel like in my case, I was um, one of those people that I had, I have kids, so I had been like sort of primary stay-home parent for quite a few years at this point. So for me, it's basically um, a part-time job. And that was sort of all throughout. I My thought was, I will feel personally successful if I can get my writing income to the level that I would have if I had a part-time job. Uh, that was my version of success for years. Um, and it took a long time. Um, but now, yes, it feels like the level I would have if I had like a part-time marketing job, which is what I was doing when I was working was marketing. When I was working outside the home was marketing. And so that was sort of my my financial goal on it, I think it's really different for people where they're really hoping to leave whatever work that they're doing. I think that's a very different sort of way of thinking about it. I know for me, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this in Big Magic, but for me, my creative self really enjoys the idea of getting paid, but I think would have a harder time if I was sort of telling it, okay, you know, crack the whip. <laughs> you got to work for us. Um, I think that would be more difficult in my case, but some people, I mean, there are those people, I noticed this in self-publishing, you know, there are some people that can put out a book or two books a year, three books a year, and they are doing great at it. And that doesn't seem to be a pace that I have been able to sustain so far. And then you finish the book and the book gets ready to come out. Like this book is now. What's going through your mind as far as the next book? Do you start working on that? Are you truly focused on promoting this book right now? We've heard on the podcast before that it's always good to start on the next book as early as possible. And what can we see, you know, in the future? So I am started on the next book. It is not, it's not sold yet. So it's still more in the mode of um, something I'm working on and really enjoying. I um, am in revisions on that. But it's definitely been put on pause for the last month or so. Just there's a lot to do around promoting lifestyles. And I really, I feel like, I know there are some authors who really resent the promotional part of this. But I have a couple thoughts about that. Thought number one is that, you know, Oscar Wilde went on speaking tours. Like the promotional part of this has always been part of being an author. And part number two is, I am so proud of this book. And so I really want it to do the best that it can. So if I am, you know, I've been doing a fun thing on Instagram where I try on dresses that I might wear to my launch party, take pictures of myself in them and put them on Instagram and let people say like, hey, I like that one. Or no, I don't like that one. It's a thing that I find to be, you know, on the fun side of things. But if that gets more people to be excited about reading this story, I that's great. That's totally exciting. But doing things like that definitely is currently taking time away from writing. So 
So I don't have a, I know I'm planning to keep pushing really hard on um, promoting lifestyles through Christmas. And then after that, I think I'll probably return to a more hermity, hermit style writing life. Moving on to some less process focused questions. Are you ready for something we call a series of seemingly random questions? Definitely. First question, is there a character that you came across during your research that maybe surprised you, uh, that you discovered as you were writing it? The character I had the most fun writing, and I really can say this version of him is truly mine, is Icarus, who most of us know as the guy who flew too close to the sun. Um, He doesn't do any flying in my book. He is Ariadne's uh, best friend. He's also the showrunner for the family's reality TV empire. And he was an absolute delight to write. But the things that were fun to write about him came out of his circumstances in the myth, which are that um, he's sort of stuck in this uh, world because his dad has agreed to work for the king. And so he's just one of those people that's like along for the ride. He didn't make the agreement, but he's stuck there doing it and has to find his own way. Um, And he's very cynical and he was just a dream to write. And what's funny about that is it made me think like, Oh, I don't think his myth is right at all. (laughs) If I get to move forward, I'll totally change his myth. You mentioned at one point that you Mm self-published. What are the pros and cons of self-publishing? And being that your current book is not self-published, what would you say to those aspiring writers thinking about going one way or the other? I would say that I am so glad that I did self-publish. And especially in the case of that book, which is called Life, Motherhood, and the Pursuit of the Perfect Handbag. That book, I finished at a time when the publishing market really didn't have a place for that kind of like pink cover book. I, I wrote it um, totally intending to be a thing that someone who was working at a job and had a life they dreamed of but couldn't see how to get there could read on the train, coming home from work, and just have a happy ending and know that everything was going to be okay. So I went through the process of querying that book. And when I was hearing, there's not a market for this. In this specific case, I was like, oh, no, there is. I know exactly what this market is. I know exactly who the person who would read this book is. I know exactly what the cover should look like. I know exactly where to sell it. In that case, it was making the decision to self-publish wasn't really complicated because, you know, I had a friend who was a cover designer and I could say like, Hey, this is what the cover should look like. And I knew, and this was also, it was a lot easier to get noticed on Amazon then than now, like things, things change with all that. But in that case, I knew, you know, once it was up there, that the people that needed it would find it. And so that was, it was a dream to write. It sold just fine over time. But at the end of the day, for me, I realized a couple big things. Thing number one is I love collaborating. I came in high school, I did drama and music. And I wanted so much to have a collaborative writing life. And self-publishing for me, that wasn't true. I mean, I worked with cover designer and stuff, but like with the actual words, collaborating. Uh, 
I just wanted to have a team. So that's the first part that I did not have in self-publishing. The second really important thing was for me, I really wanted to be in bookstores and it is very hard to get into bookstores with self-publishing because of the way the economics and discoverability of books. And the third and really the most important was I wanted to be in magazines and on websites and on podcasts that were general interest, not self-published interest, but general interest. And, and traditional publishing is still the best way to get that. I just, it's some of the things that lifestyles has gotten, like it, it, it's in this month's cosmopolitan. Like it's in Cosmo. I never could have done that on my own. Uh, that's totally because of Macmillan. So, um, so those are the reasons for going ahead and not self-publishing anything else. Next question. If you could take any writer living or dead to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant and why? So I did, I listened to the podcast. So I did think about this question. <laughs> uh, I would take William Shakespeare to in and out William Shakespeare to in and out to in and out I would take it, I would take Shakespeare because he is a writer that I have always loved. I, and specifically I love in ways that are really relevant to my process, which is number one, he was consciously writing to a popular audience, which I am definitely doing. Number two, he loved retellings of all kinds, which I am obsessed with. And number three, his love of language, which I share. And then I would go to In-N-Out because it's my favorite fast food restaurant, even though we don't have any. So every time I go anywhere where they have an In-N-Out, I would go there. What do you think uh, Shakespeare would order? Oh, Shakespeare would order that, the burger with all the, the way, what is, how do, what do they call it the way you order it? Like the monster or whatever. <laughs> I love it. Second to last question. If you could choose one learning or insight from your career, obviously you shared a lot of them today. If you had to choose one, which would you choose to those writers who are listening right now? What would you say? Oh, I would say, don't be so scared. I wasted a lot of time not showing my work to people because I was worried about what they would say. And what I've realized is that, first of all, the 20-year-old me wasn't wrong. Like, people would say, like, oh, the thing you've written is, you know, fluff or whatever they would say, like the things that the people I was afraid to show work to would say they would have said. But what I didn't understand is that just because the loudest voice in the room is saying something that's dismissive of your work. Number one, it doesn't mean that your work isn't worth something. And number two, it doesn't mean that there isn't someone else in the room that's going to say, Oh goodness, like this is incredible. This is exactly what I want. And so I was wasting a bunch of time worried about what a very specific kind of gatekeeper would say about me and my work without realizing that, like, I don't actually care that much because that's not the person I wrote it for. Like, the idea of identifying who's your target audience, if your target audience is people who love epic fantasy or rom-coms or whatever you don't have to care what you know mr high serious literary fiction or miss high serious literary fiction thinks of your work and you don't have to change it to meet that standard 
And so I think really freeing myself up to let my, I think we let fear keep us from doing a lot of stuff. The fear that things are too strange or the fear that things are too, you know, someone won't like it. Those kinds of things like, yeah, someone won't like it. I guarantee there will be a whole bunch of people that don't like it. You're not writing for them. You're writing for the people that do like it. Last question. Drum roll, please. Harry, hand me the envelope. Harry has handed me an envelope. I don't know if you've heard this part in the podcast before. If so, you know the answer. (laughs) I'm opening the envelope. And the question is, did you have fun today? Of course I had fun today. I had a ball. You guys are great. Awesome. And you are great as well. Thank you so much for talking to us about the book. We're really excited. Tuesday's coming up really soon. Did you want to obviously plug the book? Anything else? Any shout outs? Anything you want to say before you go? I just, this has been the most fun journey. I have to say that the thing that I didn't expect, which has turned out to be true, is that the young adult writing community, whether it's on Twitter or on Instagram or in the world, has been the most supportive team of people that I have really ever been around in the creative life. So I, I just, I think if you're, if you're thinking about writing young adult, uh, this, it's a great place to be. And did you want to, uh, shout out your Twitter or your website? Sure. On Twitter, I'm at Robertson Emily and my website is Emily And the important thing for all of that is that there's no T in Robertson. It's R O B E R S O N. Love it. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. Lifestyles of Gods and Monsters, for those who are listening, comes out this Tuesday, October 22nd. Buy it, read it, find it, do whatever it takes. <laughs> Based on Emily's suggestion, we're really excited about it. And uh, yeah, thank you, Emily, again. Really appreciate you. Thanks a bunch. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.